Once again, I want to invite you to open your Bibles up with me to Luke chapter 19. I was back there uh, reading uh, Rami's flyer, new update there, lots of exciting things going on. If you're interested, it's out there on the foyer, but these uh, three exciting things going on for him. He became a United States citizen. Uh, he uh, got to teach with Ravi Zacharias Ministries in, in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a huge uh, thing to do. And then uh, I guess probably the biggest thing for him is that his wife is pregnant with a baby girl. So he's uh, been, been a busy man, lots of things going on, exciting things for him. So his newsletter's out there if you want to get an update and continue to pray for him. Uh, but anyway, we're in Luke 19. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning in the account of Zacchaeus. And the title of the message that I want to bring to you today is Seeking and Saving the Lost. Seeking and Saving the Lost. And the title comes from verse 10 this morning and is really the summation of the Gospel of Luke and is really a summation of the entire Bible for that matter in that it is God who has initiated the seeking and the saving of the lost. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us the plight of humanity when he says this. He said, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's, that's everyone, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And for, furthermore, for those of you who have been with us for quite some time, you'll recall that as we worked our way through Luke chapter 15, Jesus taught us in this rapid-fire succession three parables that communicate this truth in the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And in all three instances, Jesus painted a picture of God the Father seeking as a shepherd who had lost his sheep, as a woman who had lost a coin, and a father who had lost a prodigal son, all painting the picture in our minds that the Lord finds heavenly joy, and the joy of all the saints and angels that surround His throne in the recovery of lost sinners. God does it for His own joy, He does it for His own glory, and He delights in seeking and saving the lost. Isaiah 62 verse 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Jeremiah 32, 41 says, And I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. God delights in and has great joy in seeking and saving the lost. The Bible does talk about men seeking God. It does talk about sinners seeking God. But when you put the two together, it's pretty clear that the only way that we can ever seek Him is if He seeks us. In 1 John 4.19, it summed it up when He said that we love because He first loved us. Once God begins that seeking, once He opens our understanding to our sinfulness, He illuminates us to the glory of the gospel, takes away our blindness out in the darkness, once He gives life to our deadness, once He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, those are all biblical illustrations. And once he awakens the sinner and lightens the lost one, the one who's been given life responds by seeking the one who sought him. In other words, we could put it very simply that great sinners become great saints by a great Savior. And perhaps no other writer in the New Testament emphasizes this so frequently 
and so clearly as Luke does. And we'll see that come to light in our text today in the account of Zacchaeus. So if you're there with me in Luke 19, I want us to read this text together to have it before our hearts and our minds. I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able to do so for the reading of God's holy word. Luke 19, beginning in verse 1, God's inspired and inerrant word says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Lord of all eternity and Father of all mercies, this is your holy word and you have written it for us. You have written it for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, for our training in righteousness, so that as men and women of God, we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So help us this morning to see wonderful things in your word so that we may live lives pleasing to you in all respects. It's in your beloved Son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was Charles Spurgeon, the famed Victorian preacher, who preached before a standing room only crowd of 5,000 people every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening without the aid of a microphone, who established a pastor's college that trained over 350,000 pastors that still exist even in some form to this day. It would be on Friday afternoons at the college when the students would gather under a large tree that they nicknamed the Question Oak, where they could be able to ask questions of Charles Spurgeon, and then he in turn would ask them to preach an extemporaneous sermon or a sermon that's right off the cuff with no preparation. He would give them a text from Scripture, and he would say, hey, I'm ready for you to stand up and preach a sermon. It was on one memorable occasion that Spurgeon pointed to a shy student and he gave him and told him and said, Hey, I want you to preach on Luke 19 verses 1 through 10, the very text that we have before us this morning. Nervously and intimidated about preaching before the likes of Spurgeon, the student rose up and was able to deliver a three-point sermon. And he said the following, Zacchaeus was of little stature, and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, and now so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and now so will I. And then he sat down, 
as the students led by a smiling Spurgeon applauded the student's attempt at preaching Luke chapter 19. Well, if that student didn't remember much about the story of Zacchaeus, he remembered perhaps what some of us remember from a a vacation Bible school or a Sunday school in our youth, the song that they would teach, and that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Now, although that story is sometimes taught in such a way that we remember Zacchaeus' height or the fact that he climbed a sycamore tree or what have you, there is something far greater to learn about our Savior in this text than what the song of our youth would lead us on to believe. It's a very simple story, but it's also a very profound story. And it's probably one of the most striking stories of conversion in all of Luke's gospel. But this is not only a story of conversion of Zacchaeus, but this is also our conversion story. I doubt that many of us here are tax collectors or even have the desire to be one. But the fact remains that this is every born-again believer's spiritual biography. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were hostile to the things of God. Titus 3 tells us that we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. We had no good deeds by which to commend ourselves to God. Nothing lovely within ourselves by which God might be attracted to. We had no wisdom, we had no nobility, no list of positive things in our lives that outweighed the negative ones to which God said from heaven and looked down and said, you're good enough to enter into my kingdom. But we are saved solely by the grace and the mercy of God. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. The base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that may, He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly the story of Zacchaeus this morning that we'll see kind of unfold before us. So I want to work through this text under four very simple headings. We're going to have the scene, the center, the Savior, and salvation. So notice, first of all, the scene in verse 1, which says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, just to give you a little bit of background here as to where this is at, those of you that are familiar with the Bible, you might hear the word Jericho, and you're immediately transported back to the Old Testament. And you think of Joshua and Rahab and and the marching around the city with the priests and the Ark of the Covenant and the blowing of the trumpets and the walls that came tumbling down and all those sorts of things. So you might have in your mind this, a picture of a pile of rocks and rubbles and just eating the dirt that was in the air with a few buildings that were here and there. Others of you may think, well, this is just some sleepy little village. That it just so happened that a few people were up and about to see Jesus come walking in with the crowd. 
But this is actually New Testament Jericho in that it was founded by Herod the Great. And it's about a mile and a half south of Old Testament Jericho. In fact, Herod the Great actually had a winter vacation home located in the city of Jericho. People moved there, much like people moved to Naples, Florida, or Palm Springs, California, here in the United States. And that's for the two twin reasons of location and climate. In other words, Jericho was a a desirable place to live. One Roman historian described this place as a, a little paradise, and it was sometimes called the City of the Palms. It was an oasis situated in a hot plain where you had average temperatures ranging from 59 in January to 88 in August with constant sunshine. It was full of balsam trees and sycamores and palm trees. The skyline was dominated by four fortress towers constructed by Herod the Great's son, Archelaus. He also constructed a a hippodrome, which is a giant horse and chariot racing track where thousands of people would come to watch chariot races. Those of you who have seen the 1959 movie Ben-Hur can get a picture in your mind the enormity of these types of coliseums. Archelaus also had rose gardens planted for as far as the eyes could see. And it was very reminiscent of Holland, Michigan, where the tulips come up in the spring, and there are millions and millions of tulips popping up everywhere. And so Jericho had this beautiful fragrance coming from it that it was sometimes called the perfumed place. So that as you were walking along into this town, it actually smelled as good as it looked as the winds carried the fragrances of all the flowers and the sweet-scented balsam plantations that were there. And so not only was Jericho aesthetically pleasing in its climate, its architecture, uh, but it was also the heart and the center of a network of trade routes. It had trade connections with Damascus and Tyre and Sidon to the north, as well as connections down into Egypt and into Arabia from east to west. So in other words, with all of these factors, there was a constant flow of money in and out of Jericho, And therefore, that meant that there was money to be made in Jericho, which all plays into why we find our main character here in verse 2. So notice in verse 2, we have the sinner. It says, And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to, because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. So first of all, we learn that our sinner's name is Zacchaeus. Now his name, ironically, means the righteous one. Because in the eyes of the Jews, there couldn't possibly be anything righteous about a swindling treacherous, immoral tax collector like Zacchaeus. No one who worked on behalf of the occupying Roman power could ever be righteous in their sight. And you've got to understand that this is not just their perception, because Zacchaeus himself tells you in verse 8 that they're exactly right of their diagnosis. He was a sinner. 
He defrauded people. He took things, taken things that should not have been taken. He acted as a thief in his profession and had thus been enriched by his immorality and his business deals. But it says that he was the chief tax collector. Now, this is the only time that this designation has been used of a tax collector in Luke, and it's the only time it occurs in the entire New Testament. As you know, we've seen these tax collectors before in Luke's Gospel. This is the sixth time our Lord has had an encounter with a tax collector. And every single one of them in favorably. So he defies the conventional wisdom and the attitude of the people of the day towards these men. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, 7, and 15, you'll find that the word tax collector was often paired together with the word sinners when the Jews were trying to accuse Jesus of some sort of wrongdoing. It's like peanut butter and jelly in their mind. Tax collectors and sinners just go together. But Jesus' frequent encounters with them reminds us that it's not necessarily evil or crime to be a tax collector. Now, this being the, the heat of tax collecting season, I should remind you that Jesus said that you and I are to pay our taxes. We're to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And Paul reinforced this in Romans 13 when he said that we are to render custom to whom custom is due, tribute to whom tribute is due, and tax to whom tax is due. But the Lord never had a problem with people who collected taxes because he never had problems with taxes as such. What he did have a problem with is cheating, corruption, dishonesty, and separating people from their money by force, which was what you oftentimes had in the ancient world. But it says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, meaning he's in management. He's a, a tax administrator. He was a, a notch above the guys running around actually collecting the taxes or sitting at a tax booth like Levi in Luke chapter 15. He was a chief tax collector in that he was an administrator of one of the three regional offices for the Romans. The other two were at Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast and Capernaum up in the north. And it was a collection hub, if you will, so that the Romans didn't have to come in and go to every single little city to collect all their money and their taxes. They could just go to these three cities and get the job done. Caesarea, Capernaum, and here in Jericho. And what Zacchaeus would do for the Romans is to be a funnel for all the little guys running around collecting the taxes. And the way it would work is typically the Romans, someone from the Roman government would, would call up Zacchaeus, and they would say, for example, say, hey, we want $10,000 gathered up in taxes. And Zacchaeus would say, no problem. And then he would turn around and tell all of his tax collectors working underneath of him, he would say, um, I just got a message, hey, we need to collect $12,000 for the Romans, make it happen. And so the Romans would get their $10,000, that they wanted, and Zacchaeus would get his $2,000 that he would skim off the top. And he would do that again and again and again, which is why verse 2 tells us that he was rich. Now that's an interesting piece of information for us, considering that Jesus had a run-in with a rich young ruler in Luke 18, verses 18 through 27. You remember when the, the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Eventually the conversation goes, Jesus says, you know what? Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me. 
And then in Luke 18, 23, what does Luke say to the rich young ruler did? He said, when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. Now, Luke is cluing us into the fact that the rich young ruler really loved his wealth. He loved it more than eternal life itself, and he just couldn't let go of it. And this leads Jesus into a comment because, again, good religious Jews in those days would have thought, okay, this rich young ruler is an upstanding weekly synagogue attendee. He's probably a leader in his synagogue. He gives tithes. He keeps the commandments. He's wealthy, which is clearly a sign that God has blessed him. They would have looked at him and thought to themselves, if anybody is going to get into the kingdom of God, this guy is getting in. And Jesus says in verse 24 how difficult it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples understand immediately what Jesus is saying, and they say, you have got to be kidding. If he can't get into the kingdom, then who can? And Jesus' response says, you know what? It is humanly impossible. Not really, really hard, but impossible. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now we come back to Luke 19, 1 through 10, and Jesus is displaying for you a poster child for the impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom of God, namely Zacchaeus. This is a man who is a sinner and who, humanly speaking, he's got no hope of salvation. He was excluded from worship in the synagogue. He was considered unclean. No one was to associate with him. He was lost and he needed to be found. He was a sinner and he needed to be forgiven. And Luke is making that very clear. Nobody is expecting what happens to Zacchaeus in this story to happen. He is the least likely candidate for it in the world. But here's the deal. We may not have Zacchaeus' exact sins, but we're all just like him. Apart from Christ, apart from grace, apart from the gospel, we are all sinners and need to be forgiven. We are all lost and need to be found. And that really brings home to bear an important point of application for us here in asking, is there people in your mind that you've looked at and you thought, you know what, there is no way God can save anyone like that. No way is he even a candidate to become part of a church. That person will never be able to turn their life around. He's too far gone. He's too far great of a sinner. There is no hope for them because their sins are too great and they're too bad of a person. I've done it. (laughs) This guy I used to work with is now going to church regularly. His wife went on a missions trip, their first missions trip a couple years ago. He's studying the Bible. His personality has softened to where he's actually pleasant to be around. And had you asked me 15 years ago, who was the least likely of all your co-workers that would surrender their life to Jesus Christ, I would have pointed to that guy right over there. And now he is posting pictures of the Bible on his social media. He's no longer taking pictures of his beer cans and his pickup trucks, but he's posting pictures of the Bible. And he says on this, he says, I don't know much about it, but I'm trying to learn. 
He was the least likely candidate in my mind. Is there someone in your mind that you've looked at and thought, there is no way God can save someone like that? When we do that, we are diminishing the power of the gospel. We are minimizing the power of God to change hearts. And we are making little of the strength of God's hand to save people. And this account of Zacchaeus' conversion destroys all of those false thoughts that we might ever have about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change lives for His glory. But Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is, but he's faced with two obstacles. One being that of the crowd, and more than likely this was a a large crowd that's been following Jesus. When they see someone like the, the likes of Zacchaeus, they are not moving an inch for this guy. And they're not letting him get what he wants. He's considered an unclean person, and they wouldn't have given him the time of day. And maybe they play a little zone defense and box him out a little bit. But the other challenge that he has is that he is small in stature. Now, that's a very polite way to say he's short, right? He's vertically challenged. He can't see over and above the crowd. So if he's going to see Jesus, he has to be resourceful. So he does what would be undignified for someone of Zacchaeus' position in that he runs ahead of the pack. Now, wealthy Middle Eastern men don't run. That's just something they don't do. It was undignified. And then he does what is even more unbecoming for him to do. He goes and he climbs up a tree. He's got no shame because he has to meet Jesus. Now, this is a, a sycamore tree. It's nothing like the big white and brown sycamores that we're familiar with here uh, that grow around creeks and streams. But this sycamore tree is, is wider than it is tall. It had a bigger footprint than this church almost. And from the trunk, it had branches that extended out horizontally and provided a, a tremendous amount of shade. In fact, if you were to Google this type of sycamore tree, you'll find that there's a picture of one with an entire herd of elephants standing underneath of it because it was that big to provide that much shade. And so he climbs up into the sycamore and he waits. Then notice our Savior in verse 5, it says this. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now you know, whenever Jesus calls somebody by name, Something is about to happen. Our Lord never uses anybody's name in vain. But when Jesus gets to him at the sycamore tree, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down. I must stay with you today. Now understand that Jesus, or Jewish people expected that kind of thing from a prophet to know his name. You see that thing happen in the Bible all the time. When Jesus is talking to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, he says, You know, Nathaniel? I saw you when you were under that tree, and Nathanael is white as a sheet, and he goes, how do you know this? And, and do you remember when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, and they're kind of in this fascinating theological discussion, and Jesus says, look, I'll answer that question about worship, and I'd love to chat with you some more about it, but first, go get your husband, bring him back here, and then you and I will continue that conversation. And she says, well, Jesus, I don't have a husband, and he says, you know what? That's a really, really good answer because you are correct. You don't have a husband. You're living with a guy right now, and you've had five previous husbands. And she says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. This lady is sharp. 
right? And that's exactly what's going on here. This, this little man is wanting to see who Jesus was, but Jesus was looking for him. And when he finds him, he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. He knows his name, and that's how it always is. God knows your name. God knows your innermost thoughts. Psalm 139 tells us that, Behold, before words are on my tongue, you know it all, Lord. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows your name. He was not looking for Jesus. He was looking for us. None of us had ever done anything good to make Jesus take note of us, but by the grace of God, Jesus called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, as 1 Peter 2.9 tells us. As J.C. Ryle put it, he said, If there was ever a soul sought and saved without ever having done anything to, to deserve it, that soul was the soul of Zacchaeus. Unasked, our Lord stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, He offers himself to be the guest at the house of a sinner. Unasked, he sends into the heart of a publican the renewing grace of the Spirit of God and puts him that very day among the children of God. So Jesus stops, he looks up, he calls Zacchaeus by name, tells him to hurry up and come down, and he says, I must stay at your house. In in modern day vernacular, what Jesus is saying is, hey, I'm coming over to crash at your place. I'm not just coming over for a meal, but I'm coming and I'm going to stay overnight. This is not a request of Jesus because Zacchaeus was listed on some Airbnb posting. This was a divine command. Zacchaeus never could have anticipated anything like this because he knew he was a defiled person and no one had considered himself righteous or clean would ever come near him, let alone near his house. And then to top it all off, to eat a meal with him, which was tantamount to affirmation and fellowship, to say, you're okay with me. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but far more than that, Jesus Jesus wanted to see Zacchaeus. And that brings us to another point of application, in that how is your engagement with people that are not like you with the gospel? How is your engagement with people who are different from you and whatever measuring rod you use, most often yourself in your likes and your dislikes with the gospel of Jesus Christ? In my 25 years of being a Christian, my five years of being a pastor, I've seen this over and over and over again. I've had to call people out and say, you know what, I've seen you sitting with the same people over and over again during the fellowship meal. It's the people who are just like you, people who you regularly hang around through the week. Why don't you try going over here and sitting with this family in the corner that could use your encouragement? Maybe they need to see Jesus through you. I just had lunch with another pastor a week or so ago who told me the same type of thing. He said he went to visit another church that had a lot of big families and and everyone homeschooled and everyone sort of dressed the same or at least wore the same style of clothing. And he walked in there with his wife and he had one son. And they acted like he had the plague or something because he didn't have a lot of kids. And no one would hardly engage him or talk with him. Beloved, how is your engagement of people who are not like you? 
Zacchaeus was someone whom all of Jericho, except his fellow tax collectors, would have thought he had the plague. They wanted to stay away from him. They avoided him. But Jesus engages him, and he tells him, I'm coming over to your house to stay. So in verse 6, he hurried, came down, and it says he received him gladly. Now, this would have been the first time any righteous, clean, noble, respected person had ever come to his house. And here's the Lord, like that of a, a loving father, just wrapping around his arms around a stinking prodigal son, kissing him all over the head, reconciling, embracing him and saying, I want to come over to your place and stay. This wasn't customary in the Middle East. You didn't invite yourself over. Someone invited you. This was going against the grain. And of course, Zacchaeus receives him gladly because he was so overjoyed. Imagine, how would you react if you were cut off from the synagogue? You were alienated from people, scorned when you walked through uh, town, lonely. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, I'm coming over to your place to stay and dine. Zacchaeus receives him gladly. But the crowd's reaction is typical in verse 7. It says that when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now this is outrageous. No self-respecting Jew would have ever go into the house of the chief tax administrator and stay with him, let alone eat with him. No Israelite would go to his house because then he would be basically considered a partaker of his evil deed. It's just like people that drive up in in a car and they stay in the car while somebody goes in the house and commits murder. You're guilty if you're in that car of that crime. That's how the Jews saw somebody going to the house of a tax collector. No one would go into his house because Jesus goes to his house because he seeks and he saves this lost man. We got this striking contrast between the two. Zacchaeus, who perhaps only knew of Jesus through his connections with the, with the tax-gathering community, maybe, as Jesus has interacted with them six or so times already through Luke's gospel, and he hears maybe some of the, the chatter going on within his own fraternity. He receives him with a glad heart, and the crowd who have been traveling with him sees him give sight to a blind man, and they in turn, what do they do? They grumble and complain. Zacchaeus is thankful. He has a glad heart, and gratitude is one of the telltale signs that a heart has been converted. In fact, ingratitude is one of the two charges that the Apostle Paul levels against humanity in Romans one twenty one when he says that even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Gratitude is a fruit of conversion. So what other signs are there that give evidence to a converted heart? Well, you've got to come back next week and we're going to pick up with the salvation of Zacchaeus, because we're out of time. But until then, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, let it not just come into our ears, but help it to be deeply implanted into our hearts. Help us to engage people that don't appear to be savable, because it's not by our strength or our might or our creative words that we say but it's by your Spirit that men and women
come to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be engaging into this lost world that's all around us. Help us to bear fruit for your glory and for your praise. Father, we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.